Good morning. Good to be here with you on the Lord's Day. This week as I was studying the text and preparing the sermon, it became really clear to me, and maybe in just a few minutes you'll understand why, how we can be right there in the presence of God and see but not see, and see but not believe. And sometimes I think it is because we're reductionists by nature. We have a way of reducing things down to natural things and not allowing ourselves to see, perhaps in a moment, that God is speaking or God is doing something. Just now, often before I get up to preach, I have a little acrostic that I go through, aptat, which is acknowledge my need for God is the A. I pray for power. I trust that he'll be with me. I act in faith once I'm up here. And then after it's over, I give thanksgiving to God that he would work. Before our oldest daughter left for Georgetown, when the night before she left, we had a family devotion. And the family devotion was the story of Ebenezer and how an Ebenezer is a reminder of God's faithfulness. And so we went through the uh, family devotion, didn't think much about it. The next day, we drove to Washington, D.C. to leave her there at Georgetown. And as we got off one of the trains, we walked out and we said, I said, because I'm the coffee drinker, I'd like to get a cup of coffee. There's a place over there. You know what the name of the coffee shop was as we were getting ready to leave our daughter in D.C.? Ebenezer. And when I saw Ebenezer, in my heart, I knew God is telling me this is going to be okay. We're going to be okay. She's going to be okay. God is in D.C., not just Atlanta, and God is going to be with us in this adventure. Do you see God in the little things? I want to give you a quick outline. The title of the sermon is The Bread of Life. The outline, so that you can kind of get your head around where we're going, is I'm going to show you that there were three strikes. Those that were following Christ and they saw the, uh, the 5,000 people fed with just three barley loaves and two fish. They followed him across the sea over to Capernaum, and now they're there and they're asking him questions. We just read it. I'll read it again in a moment. But they, they encounter, and Jesus kind of gives them this, you missed it, three times. The second part is satisfaction in Jesus and how it relates to saving faith. Not just believing in God, there's a difference, but saving faith, how satisfaction and saving faith are connected. We're going to see that in John 6.35. And then we're going to talk about, in John 6.37 through 40, the sovereign work of God and how significant that is to every believer that when life, when the storms of life come, not just the storms of life, but even coming into the kingdom of God, the importance of the sovereignty of God. You need a wardrobe, a theological wardrobe of a deep understanding of the sovereignty of God. 
Because one day, somebody's going to tell you you have cancer. Maybe they already have. One day, somebody's going to tell you you have so long to live or your child is dying. One day, the storms will come. You need a wardrobe, a theological wardrobe, and an understanding of the sovereignty of God that will hold you in the dark hour. So we're going to talk about that. First, let's talk about strike the three strikes. Obviously, I'm using a baseball illustration. In verse 32, look with me in your Bibles at John 6, 32. I want us to be a Bible church. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to keep looking with me into the Scripture. John 6, 32, it says, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven because they're asking for another sign. They've seen the 5,000 fed, but they're still unsure about the identity of Jesus. So he says, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And so he's correcting them. They think it's Moses that gave the bread. He's saying, it's not Moses, but it was my father. It was God. God gave you bread from heaven. And this is a common mistake, not just of the Jews that were looking for a miraculous Messiah, but of us too. And here's how we make this mistake. Here's how we strike one. Is we have, we have this thing in us that wants to promote men and not necessarily promote God. And it's natural. And some of it is not all bad. We have a healthy respect, hopefully, for those in ministry. But we also are clear and we realize that some of those abuse our respect. But we tend to promote men. And here they're promoting Moses over God. And I'll just tell you, any man of God that is truly walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, when he stands like I am today, what he wants you to see is not him. He wants you to see this glorious God, Savior, Redeemer, the beauty and majesty of God, not him. And somehow, standing there in front of God himself, they think about Moses, as we do. So that's human nature, strike one. Strike two, Look with me again at, at 6, 33 and 34. In 33 and 34, Jesus says this, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so what do they say to that? They say, Sir, give us this bread always. Because this is like wonderful bread. Uh, you know, there's that wonder bread. This is more than wonder bread. This is like the bread that satisfies always. So they're like, give that to us. But you see what Jesus tells them. He basically says, you see, but you don't see. You see, but you don't see. Strike two. You know, he says, you're looking right now. You're looking at the bread from heaven, but you can't see it. It's right in front of you. 
My father used to say, if it had been a snake, it would have bit you. It's right in front of you, but you can't see it. The truth of God is right in front of us. When we wake up each day and the sun is shining through your window, or you hear the birds in the trees, or you watch your children growing, these are all echoes of God's glorious creation. Echoes of God himself. We see them daily, or do we? You see, Jesus is saying to them, you see, but you don't see. And when you do see, what you see is men, are men. You promote Moses. The bread from heaven came from God himself. Your bread, your daily bread. You may think it's coming from your job that God is providing. But if you're eating regularly and you have a house and you have things, God is providing that. It is coming from God himself. Can we see it? Here's the thing. What are evidences of God? You know, sometimes I know you do. I don't know you do, but I struggle. Sometimes I am faithless, and I have to come back to three things. And you know what I come back to? I, I look at creation. I may go for a walk in the woods. I may go down to the river near our house. And I look at creation, and there's something about being in creation. Just yesterday, at my neighbor's, I'm throwing the ball with my dog, and I see a hummingbird come up and feed on this flower and then pop over to the next flower. And in my mind, in my heart, I said, that's God. That is an echo of God himself. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But we miss it. So I see God, I see evidences of God in three places that I don't want you to miss either. In his creation, I see him. The second one is in his word. The more that I read his word, the more it interprets this world. And the more I understand what his word is saying, the more it just screams at me, this is the truth. When all other things don't, the word of God seems to always come and it's just interpreting the world and interpreting my sin problem and interpreting why I do the things I do and interpreting why others do the things they do. And I just go, wow, that's truth. And I'm more convinced through creation and through God's word. And then the third thing is the gospel. When I start to doubt, is all this real? I got creation, I got his word, and then I got the gospel. You know why the gospel is so helpful? Because the gospel is absolutely contradictory to everything else in the world. Everything else in the world says you got to earn it. The gospel says it's a free gift from me to you because I love you. And I don't just love you because you can perform well. I don't love you because you can, you're a high achiever. I love you because I love you. I love you unconditionally. See, there's nothing else like that. We don't even do that well with our own children. But God does that with us. God does that with his children. And those three things help me. So strike one, we promote men. Strike two, we see but we don't see. 
John in strike three. John 6.36. Look with me again at, the, at the, the Bible in front of you. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You have seen me, but you don't believe. You see, but you don't see. What you do see, you give credit to somebody else. And then when you do see me, you don't believe it. You see the the three strikes. Seeing isn't necessarily believing when it comes to spiritual things. This last strike is like a baseball player in the batter's box and he sees the pitch coming, and y'all have seen it before. He swings so hard, he swings and he swings himself into the dirt, a complete whiff. And he picks himself up from the dirt after completely whiffing and missing the ball. He has seen, but he doesn't believe. You can see the bread of life standing in front of you through God's word, through God's people through God's spirit, and yet not believe. And so, the third strike. The question is, to me, why do they not believe? What is it that makes us see and not see? What is it that makes us see and give credit to Moses and not God? What is it that makes us see and not believe? And I think it's in the second part of the text and my second point. John 6, 35. Look with me again. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I believe in John 6, 35, it sheds a light on why they don't believe when they have him right there in their midst. And I also believe it sheds light on why we don't believe when we have him right here in our midst. And the question that I had in my study this week is, does Jesus, does he really satisfy? Because if I'm just transparent with you, and I would imagine if I could ask you and you would be transparent with me, this might be what the conversation would sound like. Are you really satisfied in Jesus? Often, often, I'm not. Often I'm unsatisfied. Often. So then the question that came to me after that is, what does spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst, what does that really look like? Or what does spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst really feel like in the physical world? What does that feel like in the physical world? I think that spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst, is revealed in our desires. It's revealed in our longings. And if you think about it, when you're really hungry and you're really longing for something to eat, that's a good analogy to say bread. You know, good bread cooked in an oven, floating through the house when you come in and you're really hungry. It's like, man, that smells incredible. Longings, desires. If you've ever really, really been thirsty, you know a good drink of cold water on a thirsty day 
is just heaven, a slice of heaven. And I think Jesus is saying that. These desires are God-given. They're built into the fabric of who you are as a human being. He's given you a spiritual hunger. He has given you a spiritual thirst. And you say, well, how do they manifest themselves? They manifest themselves primarily, I think, this way. Every person in here, if I could poll every one of you, you would say, I desire to be happy. And somehow in our minds, happiness and walking with God, happiness and God's glory almost feel like they're opposites. But the truth is, God put this deep, passionate desire for happiness in your heart that nothing else can feel but him because in him there is ultimate joy. In him there is ultimate happiness. And only in him will we find those deepest desires and those deep longings truly and deeply fulfilled. So spiritual hunger... And thirst looks like these desires for happiness, for worth, self-worth, for peace, for joy, all of those. When you feel insecure, when you feel uh, rattled and tattered and worried and anxious, when you feel exhausted and beat down and depressed, that's spiritual hunger. That is spiritual thirst. And what Jesus is saying is I am here to meet that need. I am the bread of life. I am the water that you will drink from and never thirst again. However, we have our routes that we take to find our joy and our meaning. They're unconscious strategies that we go about to bypass dependence on our creator alone and find our independence. We try to find our meaning, our self-worth, our identity, our satisfaction, independent of our creator. And they are means of trying to maintain in some measure the control of our own lives. We don't want, we just in our flesh because of the fall, and let me say it, Because of sin and pride, we do not naturally want to surrender ourselves to our Creator. You may think you do, but I'm just telling you, the Bible says you don't. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that no one seeks God, no, not one, that that is not your natural inclination to pursue your satisfaction in God. The only way that changes is if God shows up and somehow does a work. And so, our hearts will not rest until they find contentment in something. Your heart will not rest until it finds contentment in something. And ultimately... Hearts will not find contentment until they find contentment in God. They will keep looking and they will keep looking 
and they will keep looking. Your heart is a desire factory, and it is cranking out these desires all the time for self-worth, for value, for happiness, for joy. That's spiritual hunger. That's spiritual thirst. And only when you come to the only one that can truly satisfy will that hunger and thirst be quenched. A strange melancholy came over the globe in 2008 when the economic crisis began in mid-2008. There followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, which probably many of you had your mortgage with, hanged himself in his basement in 2008. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money due to the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. He slit his wrist and died. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in his $500 a night suite in Knightsbridge, London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan's Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and he leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. A friend said the Bear Stearns thing just broke his spirit. He lost hope. They lost hope. Why did they lose hope? They lost hope because they were finding their hope in something that could not satisfy. Ultimately, they had built their house. They had built their life on sand. And when it came to ruins in 2008, the only thing they knew to do to relieve the pain and the loss of hope was to kill themselves. It is imperative that we evaluate and recognize the nature of our strategies by which we seek to make our lives work. Our routes for joy, our, our, our routes for security and for significance, we're, we seek like mad to find happiness and satisfaction. We do. But what's the source of our greedy selfishness or our self-centeredness or our self-indulgement? These things have their roots in our basic needs or our deepest longings. But in a spiritual independence, it is in our spiritual independence, another way to say that is our pride. Another way to say that is our sin. We do not want to hope in the only thing that can deliver us. There is something called sin in us and selfish 
pride that wants to live a life independent of our Creator. And this is where it'll get personal. Follow this statement. The nature of saving faith is satisfaction in Jesus alone. The nature of saving faith is satisfaction in Jesus alone. What am I saying? I'm saying that if someone comes down an aisle and prays a prayer and hangs on to that for the rest of their life, but they're not finding their deepest satisfaction in God, they don't know God. How could you, how could you know the God of this universe, the creator of all of there ever is, will be, the most beautiful being on the, in the whole creation, uh, not created, but God himself, and live for yourself entirely your whole life, but because you had a moment, an emotional experience, but you never, you never treasured him above all else. You never saw him as the treasure that he was. You never uh, were satisfied deeply in him and him alone. How could you truly know him? How could anybody that isn't being satisfied in him really be in a right relationship with him? And that is why I'm not just saying this. I'm going to show it to you right now in John 6, 36. John 6, 35. I don't want you just to hear what I said. I want you to see this in the Bible. I want you to hear this from Jesus himself. Jesus says to them in John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now follow me, follow me. This verse shows us the nature of saving faith. Notice the parallel between coming to Jesus and being satisfied and believing on Jesus. Notice the nature of that. Coming to Jesus and believing and being satisfied. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. That's the first statement. We come to Jesus to have our hunger still. Now, the parallel to that and the repeating meaning, sorry, Joseph. He tries to make it through, but there's something about my screaming that gets him. And Bob, too. We have the youngest member of the congregation and maybe the oldest. Both probably need pee breaks. <laughs> Just when you come back, don't cry, all right? <laughs> all right. So the first statement, we come to Jesus to have our hunger stilled. Now, the parallel to that and the repeating, the repeating meaning is the next statement in, in John 6, 35. It says, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Coming to Jesus to be satisfied in him and believing on him so as to not thirst are the same. 
So saving faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Saving faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. The implications are if we're not satisfied in him through Christ, perhaps we're really not his. That would explain why churches in America are full of people that come to church, but then when they leave church, they go out and live like the rest of the world. That would be a good explanation. I think it is the explanation. Because I think what's happening in John 6 is those people, the Jewish people, God's people, they missed it. Seeing they didn't see, what they did see, they gave credit to a man, and hearing they didn't believe. It sounds like the church to me. It sounds a whole lot like the church. You come, you see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't believe. And then what you do see, you give credit to a man. We miss God altogether. It's just crazy. We miss him. Listen to what Tozier, A.W. Tozier says. In a world in hot pursuit of quenching its thirst with everything but God, in the midst of this great coldness toward God, there are some, I rejoice to acknowledge, who will not be content with shallow logic. They will admit the force of the argument and then turn away with tears to hunt some lonely place to pray. Oh God, show me your glory. They want to taste. They want to touch with their hearts to see with their inner eyes the wonder that is God. I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to a present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religion, our religious lives, is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Too bad that with many of us, he waits so long so long in vain. Do you thirst for him? Are you finding him to be your greatest joy, your deepest satisfaction? Now, this is a corrective statement for everything that I've said so far. All right? I want you to hear this because... You could misunderstand me if you don't get this. This doesn't mean hunger and thirst in our souls does not rise up every day. In my soul, I thirst spiritually. In my soul, I'm hungry spiritually. So then what am I saying? I just contradicted 15 minutes, didn't I? 
No, I didn't. It means now we know what that desire and that longing is for. Now we know where to turn. Instead of turning to a 401k and having my retirement perfectly filled up so that when I get older, I can go and buy a yacht and live down in Florida and give my life to nothing. If you're a Christian, how could you do that? It means I turn to Christ. I turn to him and I find him to be my ultimate joy and satisfaction. I drink, I eat Christ. I take him in and I find that he satisfies me. At the deepest, longest, hardest places, in the darkest night, when I can't see a way forward, when all hope is lost, when my kids are doing horrible, when I've got cancer, when I'm getting old and my bones hurt, you know what? I can have joy. I can be happy. I can be deeply fulfilled because there's more. There's way more. One day we will stand on the shores of eternity and we'll look back and all this will be a distant memory. And then you know what? We'll hear, we'll, we'll hear wedding bells and perhaps someone will run up to us with an invitation and we'll leave that shore and we'll go to this banquet area and we're going to see our Lord Jesus in all his glory. And there will be this banquet prepared and we will see Paul and we will see Moses and we will see Stephen who was stoned and we will see some of our loved ones that have left us. And by the grace of God, I hope I'll see my own father. I have no promise for that. And there will be slapping on the backs and there will be laughs and we will share stories and this will be a distant memory. That's more real than me standing here right now. That's the truth. That is the truth. So, because I have to push in, because I love you, I ask you, what is the source? What is the nature? What is the strategy that you're employing to find life? Where are you looking for life? Is it Him? Is it the treasure that that man went and sold everything so he could buy that field, so that he could have that treasure? Is that you? The final point is this idea about God's sovereignty. And it is the idea that I want to undergird all that I've said because I want the saints in Christ here today to be deeply encouraged by the sovereignty of God. Look at John 6. 37 through 40. And that the Father gives me, excuse me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So I'm going to make a few points about this, and I'll be done. The first point is this. The Father, in his sovereign will, is giving some to the Son. You see that? All that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father is giving some to the Son. And he says, whoever comes to me, they won't be lost. You know why they won't be lost? Because God the Father and his sovereign will is the most sure thing in the universe. There's no greater authority. There's no greater power. His power is unshakable. And so Jesus is clear. It's like, if the Father gives them to me, they're good. Trust me. And in this text, he says three times, this is the Father's will. And so if you're a believer, it is the Father's will. The Father thought of you. Person. This isn't necessarily a corporate thing. The Father knows you. And the Father cared enough to give you to his Son. If we get our heads around that kind of stuff, it changes the way we live. It says, you know, in our text, many did not believe, but some will come to the Son. Some will come. Why? The answer's in the text. Because the Father gives them with his sovereign authority. And I said, you need to know, you need a theological wardrobe that clothes you so that when the storms come, your absolute bank trust is in the sovereignty of God. He is for his people and he is your God. I have no doubt in my mind, when my father was alive, he would have done anything he could have done to help me as a man. There's no doubt in my mind. And there's no doubt in my mind, and you know it as a parent, any of my children, any of them, if it's right and they need it, they need it, not just want it, and it's right, I'll move mountains. I'll do whatever I got to do to make that happen. Here's what I'm saying to you, child of God. The Father will do whatever to make you right with Him. He wills it. His sovereign will and authority will keep you. And then look what it says after that. To those who come to Jesus, they are kept under the almighty power of Christ Himself. They will not be lost. They will not be cast out. If we are his, there is nothing or no one that can change that. That is eternal security. 
banked on the person of God himself. If you are his, man, you're his indeed. And then the third point. Jesus will raise us from the dead on the last day. Death feels so final. But we know from God's word, this is not the case. Our bodies will be raised as our souls when we die are already in the presence of God. He now will raise up our bodies. Now, it'll be glorified bodies because you're sitting there going, you know, somebody's cremated or got blown up in a war. How does that, how does that work? Well, it works supernaturally and there's mystery. But he's going to give you a glorified body. And I bet you, if I saw you in heaven, I'd know it was you. Jesus has the power to do that. The will, the fourth point, the will of God in our coming, his giving, our raising, our believing is unshakable. The sovereign will of God is the most trustworthy thing in all the universe. The sovereign will of God is the most trustworthy thing in all the universe. What he has promised, he will do. So, closing. Do you know you are his today? How can you know that? How can you know that? I point you back to John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Have you placed your faith in Jesus in this way? That he is ever increasingly your greatest joy. He is ever increasingly your greatest hope. He is where you're finding life. You're looking to him for that life. Are you seeking to fulfill your deepest desires through him? Or have you created a life where you're not desperately needing him? You've created a life that honestly, he's kind of a piece of the pie, but he's not your life. Colossians says, our lives are hidden in Christ. When he is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. That's real Christianity. That's real Christianity. If you find your desires wanting, and you see that there's a strategy that you're employing to find life somewhere other than God, somewhere other than Christ, you might be like these that see but don't see. They hear, but they don't believe. Strike three. I ask you, if that is you, come to Christ today for your ultimate satisfaction. He is the bread of life. Amen. Father,
if there is someone here that does not know you, and this has made that clear, I pray that they would trust you. And for those of us who know you but have not been finding you to be our deepest joy, our greatest satisfaction, give us the grace to come back, to love you, to treasure you, to want you more than we want anything else in this life. I pray this in Jesus' name.